Welcome to the STR Data Lab. Hello and welcome to another edition of the STR Data Lab. I'm Jamie Lane, Chief Economist at AirDNA, and I'm joined again uh, by good friend and colleague, uh, Bram Gallagher, Dr. Bram Gallagher, economist extraordinaire at AirDNA. Uh, Bram, welcome to the show again. Thank you for having me, Jamie. It's always a pleasure. Yeah. So I know you just got off of a great little vacation. We're, we're happy to ha have you back. And as a present for you for actually coming back, we got some data for September. Yeah, no, it was, it was, thank you. Yeah, it was a great vacation doing some uh, doing some primary research in the Gulf Coast. So we do that every year. We had a lot of fun, but it was even more fun coming back to these great September numbers. Really, <laughs> really great months. Really strong months. Well, I'm gonna switch with you now because I'm in I'm in Dallas today. I was at the um, NAIB conference. So for those of you who have never heard that acronym, it's the National Association of Business Economists, a real uh, wild crowd, as you can guess, uh, party last night. <laughs> it went into the wee hours of nine o'clock. And now I'm uh, flying out to the Northwest Florida Beaches Airport uh, this afternoon to spend a little bit of time with my family. So I'll be uh, reaching out afterwards for some uh, recommendations, maybe some good fried shrimp or something. Sure, sure. You know, we had a lot of fried shrimp. <laughs> so uh, let's dive in. And maybe we'll start with what happened in terms of short-term rental performance for the month of September and then dive in. I know the economy's top of mind for me right now, having just spent two days with a bunch of economists and some wild swings in data that we've seen over the past couple of days. And then and maybe talk a little bit about the impact of this this new war, the sort of uh, the terrorist attack that we saw on Israel, uh, and the sort of impending war now. I know, and we don't know the full extent of what uh, might be happening and what the impact will be on the sort of global economy. But I know our thoughts and prayers are with everyone involved in the conflict now and uh, impacted. Right, certainly. So I, let's start off with the, yeah the performance. So coming into this, you know, it was a great August, you know, loved August, but it was marred by a, a couple of problems, you know, big heat wave. There were some natural disasters that were going on, that hurricane, the Dahlia in Florida, we had wildfires uh, and all across Canada, of course, it was sending smoke into the Northeast and, and, and Hawaii as well, very destructive. So our year over year demand increase for August was only about 7 0.8%, so a little bit lower than it had been in previous months. And I was worried about this might be the start of a trend. On the other hand, we had been seeing a lot of uh, really good pacing for the month of September. We were very excited for off-season performance. And the, our, our wish came true. We had really nice numbers. It, was, it went from 7.8 year over year to 12.2. So extremely exciting month-to-month -month, uh, lift for demand. The revenue picture was even stronger, 8.3% in August, lifted up to 15.1% in September. So really excited to see that. And, you know, we've got this really great demand picture um, with the occupancy story. That has been one of, of course, we've been following this entire year, Jamie, and I've been really, really nervous about that because for the first time in a long time, we dipped below 2019 levels of occupancy in 
August. So the story there had been that uh, we started out the year sort of between 2022 levels and 2019 levels, and we started tacking really close to 2022, which is, which is a great sign because those numbers were really high coming off of incredible 2021 performance. So we were doing really well, and then August hit, and our occupancy was just very slightly below the 2019 level. So that was extremely disheartening. But uh, again, it was a it was a difficult August with all the, the the heat wave and all the other natural disasters that were going on. So in September, I was really glad to see that we we once again went from a 4.2 negative year over year change in occupancy down to just negative 1.2% and tacking much, much closer to 2022 than we are 2019. So uh, we're back on track as far as our occupancy story goes. So it does seem like the weakness that we saw in August was a, a bit of an anomaly. I know you'd been talking about for months and looking at the sort of forward data that September was looking strong and that uh, sort of came true. And I know we talked about it on the podcast last month with Pear Lee uh, that this was the first time in, in the recovery that we had dropped below 2019 levels, uh, so back above. And I think also importantly, not to sort of be too positive on performance, we did hit, what, 19 now consecutive months of declining year-over-year occupancy. So not back to growth and still declining off of the highs of 2021 and 2022, but at least sort of staying above that 2019 benchmark. Well, yeah, that's that's certainly true uh, that we have seen a lot of the, the, this long period of declining occupancy. But on the other hand, that 2021 occupancy was just so high that it was very remarkable. And 2022 also was an extremely strong year for occupancy. So now that I'm looking at the graph and we are so much closer to the 2022 occupancy than we expected at the beginning of the year, and we knew that occupancy was going to be declining. And beginning of this year, I thought it was going to be declining and maybe approaching the 2019 level. So really great to see it so far ahead. Uh, you know, 2019 in September, we had 53.3% occupancy. And then this year we had 56.9. So you know, well above that 2019, that 2019 level, I would say almost achieving maybe a, a, a stable occupancy predicting 2024 is going to be tricky. Is it going to stay at this high level? It, it might. So well, maybe we'll, we'll save the outlook. I know we're, we've got that coming up uh, this fall, but the sort of other concerning uh, metric has been around rates, both what is the year over year change and then I know we've been tracking very extensively what is the, we're calling it internally the repeat rent, or when we compare the sort of the same listings that were available last year compared to this year, and what are we seeing in terms of rent increases or declines? So what did we see for September there? Was September a good month on rates as well? It was. It was 2.6% positive, which is not quite quite enough to give us improvements in real rate just yet. So inflation, I think, is still you know, well north of 3.5%. But it certainly was higher than what we saw in August, which was a very, very slight decline. And the first decline we've seen in ADR in a long time. So a very slight decline to 2.6%. And that, that's one of the reasons why that revenue number for September 
achieved so much higher growth than we did in August. Looking at the repeat rent, and what the repeat rent does, and, and this is, is most helpful, is it really takes out the effect of mixed shift. That's been pernicious because we have seen a lot of supply change over the last couple of years. But if you were to look at the repeat rent index, which takes out that mixed shift, on the positive side, we didn't see a decline in rate in August. Rate stayed pretty, pretty much flat uh, on the repeat rent index. So that negative that we saw may have been due to uh, the mixed shift, the supply change that happened in August. But conversely, that 2.6% lift also seems to be attributed mostly to mixed shift because our repeat rent index for September also stayed pretty level. So if you've got a, a short-term rental, it's probably renting out the same rate as it was last year on average, if you've had it for both years. On the other hand, the, the new supply that we saw, or the mix, I guess, that we saw in August was 2.6% richer, I guess, than it was last year. So it, it sounds like this repeat rent uh, index lets us sort of cut through the noise of sort of changing supply when, we're, when, we, have, when we have supply growing 10 plus percent. This year, 25% plus last year, and there's and two, three percent monthly churn. And there's a lot of change in the supply. So this repeat rent lets us sort of benchmark on like to like on what's happening for rates. It it seems to me that the fact that it's been so consistently flat, that sort of really gives us a, a much better view into what's actually happening in, in terms of rates, right? Sure, yeah. So while the Fed likes to use its core CPI to get a more sort of even-keeled look at inflation, so too does this repeat rent index have less up-and-down variation. It's, it's more stable. And, of course, if you've been operating in the space for, for a long time, then it, I think it's going to give you a more accurate portrayal about what's happening for your properties rather than just the market aggregate. That's great. So maybe digging in a, be, a bit more in terms of what's what's happening with demand and the sort of trends across the country. What have you been focusing in on? I, I know in pre-show we talked about a couple trends, but are there any sort of interesting insights as you've dug into the data uh, this month that you want to talk about? Yeah, yeah. You know, you had raised up this this question because you know, we've been getting so many requests about New York and the regulations that they're going to be putting in, in place right there. And we had asked about urban markets in particular because okay, all the locations are doing pretty well and they certainly have recovered to our you know, 2019 benchmark uh, with the exception of urban demand, which is still lagging behind almost 15% below it was in 2019. So we were, we were wondering about what that might be from and if regulation had maybe a role to play in that. So what I did was actually I looked at 2019 and 2023 for these urban markets, big city urban markets. And I looked at the concentration of demand in these markets. So in 2019, of all the location types, uh, urban was far and away the most concentrated. So we've got, let me count out the exact number. So we've got 51 locations that we're designating as big city urban. And if we look at the top five of those, that accounts in 2019, that accounts for a full 46%, almost half of the entire demand picture for big city urban. And those five cities in order in 2019 were New York, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., Boston, Massachusetts, and Seattle, Washington. The other 
uh, interesting feature there is that all five of those have significant STR regulations in place. And after COVID, uh, and this is a trend that you've talked about before, Jamie, but it's, it, we saw a decline in listings across the board everywhere. But if you've got a lot of regulations in place, it's much more difficult to put that supply back into place. So for those five markets, all of those have many fewer listings than they did in 2019 today. So if we were to look, so let's go forward from 2019 to September 2023, New York and Los Angeles are still the number one and number two big city locations, but Houston, Atlanta, and Miami have rounded out the top five. The concentration is now from about half to more like 39% of all the demand in those top five markets. So the other big cities have been able to catch up a little bit, and that's helped to spread the demand out. But on the other hand, the difficulty in getting that supply back for those five heavy hitters that we saw in 2019, I think, has, has impeded a full recovery in urban. And that's on top of, of course, changing preferences after the, uh, the COVID outbreak as well. We know that people really sought out less densely populated areas, rural, small town of course, that, that has exploded in the last couple of years. So you know, there's, there's that change in preference, but also there is this regulatory bit, which has taken a, a pretty big chunk out of the biggest players in the big city urban market. Okay. So seems like you're telling me we, we may not ever get back to 2019 levels for these urban areas unless we see some of the relatively smaller cities like uh, and sitting here in Dallas, like the urban core of Dallas or Atlanta or uh, Houston, really accelerate. And and as I say that, all all markets as well that are seeing increased regulation in sort of the and downtown urban areas. So it could be a challenging uh, environment uh, for investors that want to get into that market and for us to see uh, full recovery in the in these urban areas. Yeah, I could agree. I mean, I've I've been to Houston recently and they're trying their hardest to, you know, build their way out of this. <laughs> There's a I don't know how many grains are in Houston, but yeah, at the same time whenever you you see big spikes in the the listings in these urban areas particularly that are facing, you know, big population increases like Houston is, you know, there is some concern about housing affordability and and one of the the scapegoats that gets regulated is short-term rentals. So yeah, I think there's there's going to be a lot of difficulty in making up the lost ground from those top five markets from these these smaller big cities. But also, yeah, there might be renewed pushes there as well to 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 start regulating. So maybe now we'll 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 pivot to the economy uh, since, and this has been a sort of wild week, as I said earlier, in terms of economic data and what it's and sort of says about where we're at in the recovery and, and where we're at in terms of growth going forward. So maybe we can start with in the job jobs report that came out last Friday. It was a very strong report in terms of sort of net increase in jobs, well above sort of what we'd seen in, in previous months. We saw some decent revisions to the upside for previous months as well, which sort of bucks what we had been seeing of and sort of strong initial number and then revisions down. And then sort of the stock market initially dropped 
and then sort of rallied later in the day and, and on Friday as sort of investors sort of digested it. And we ended up with bond prices down, stocks up. Like, I, <laughs> and then not to mention the sort of wild swings that we've been seeing in oil prices and the impact there. What, what do you want to start with, Bram? <laughs> oh, that's, yeah. Oh, my goodness. I had flashbacks to January. You know, we had a very strong labor market and we said, well, you know, now we're going to be at a more stable pace. We're just going to be keeping up. And then, of course, we had this incredibly strong number. And what, we had 336,000 jobs. I was expecting somewhere like 200,000 in that range, uh, which would be, you know, a stable pace. You know, well, um, participation, labor force participation has ticked up a little bit these last two months. It's the highest it's been since the beginning of the pandemic, and that has something to do with it. Maybe we'll see a downward revision to this, but this is still a really strong jobs report. Unemployment stays right around 3.8%, so still probably below natural unemployment. And the Fed's going to be looking at that. You know, before this, we would have said pretty much guaranteed no more rate increases for the rest of the year. But now it's a little bit more difficult. I think the markets have settled down, as you say. The preponderance of evidence is that good news in this case is good news. We've got a number of things coming up, whether it's uh, probably reduced spending, consumer spending this holiday season because of the balance sheets, uh, resumption of student loan payments, you know, some headwinds maybe on economic growth that, that might play in to the Fed's decision making. But, but still very strong. I was really excited until you took the shine off of it from with these business economists at the Legion Hospitality numbers, by far and away the biggest sector increase, almost 100,000 new jobs in September for that, for that group. But uh, would you say that maybe due to the seasonality, the seasonal corrections that are put in place? Yeah. And who knows right now how the sort of seasonality of sort of lodging is going to go back, whether it's going to go back to normal. So it, it can very much depend on that seasonal. And when we look at the seasonal adjusted values of what's going into that. So I do, and in looking at it, it does look like there's some, a bit of strength there that maybe isn't sort of fully warranted given the sort of expected seasonal adjustments that I would have put in there. Uh, so maybe a, a slight overstatement there in terms of job, job growth. Yeah, I guess I might have just gotten excited because it was my hypothesis already that we were seeing stronger off-season demand and maybe this was just supporting a conclusion I had already reached. But, you know, even with down revisions, it's, I think it's still going to be a pretty good month for leisure and hospitality employment. The inflation number, now that that is going to be tricky uh, because it, it definitely did go back up. Some of the reduced CPI that we had seen previous to this year had been declines in, in energy prices. If we look at core CPI, it's been a little bit higher when we strip out food and energy, and it has been a little bit more consistent in its trajectory. But, phew, geopolitics. You know, we had one petro state engaged in armed conflict with Russia and Ukraine. And, uh, you know, it, it, Israel is not an oil producing nation, but its proximity to many that, that are, you know, uh, just the, the fact that this was interrupting normalization of diplomatic relationships between Israel and Saudi Arabia, of course, the big petro producer in the area, raises some concerns about energy prices going into this winter. So uh, we had concerns last year. 
we had a lot of reserves in place in Europe that helped out, I think. And, uh, you know, we, we sort of avoided catastrophe. But prolonged conflict, I think, could definitely weigh on energy prices. And that, that's concerning for inflation, because even if you strip out gas and food, those higher energy prices are going to be trickling down to other other prices as well as they are an input for for so many things. And you got to get your goods to places. Uh, you got to have energy to produce your goods. Got to have energy to produce other raw materials to produce your goods. So the longer this uncertainty prevails, the longer it disrupts energy markets, then the the larger impact it potentially could have on inflation. And the Fed may have to step in again. But Bram. What about the great rate wage numbers that we saw in the in the jobs report on fire Friday? So overall wage growth ticked down again in September. It's now tracking at an annual growth rate of just 3.4% over the last three months, which is pretty much consistent with the Fed's 2% inflation target after adjusting for productivity. So in thinking about I mean, the concerns about the wage price spiral. And we still know there's lagged effects that's going to come from and changes in, in rents for housing, uh, which is going to be further sort of pulling down the uh, overall rate of inflation over the next few months through the end of the year and into 2024. And that's sort of baked in, right? So you've got to be feeling somewhat good about and the trajectory for inflation, right? Well, that. The inflationary story this entire time has been supply side, kind of induced. You know, we've been able to avoid that wage price spiral. So first we had the, the supply chain disruption, and now I'm talking about an energy price spike. So which would be another, another supply side. So it is those wage numbers are a positive sign to the Fed on the one hand, but you know on the other hand we have seen, of course, the, the incredible power that supply side shocks like this have um, on inflation and. The other thing is that it, it does seem this time around to have made some of the Fed's actions take a little bit longer to trickle through the economy, maybe be a little bit less potent than they've been in the past at uh, rating in inflation. So, again, it's kind of a double-edged sword. But you're right. We haven't seen evidence of the, the wage spiral, which is really where you can end up with some runaway inflation. And even with the sort of new war, we still have oil prices below what we are at and through September. We did sort of see a spike at the end of September, almost up to $95 a barrel. Uh, That's then subsequently decreased almost down to $80 a barrel. Uh, Last week, now we're back up to around $85. There's been a wild ride, but net-net, we're not seeing a a real big run-up yet even after we've sort of, I mean, the markets have digested what the risk is of this this new war. So how worried are you that oil prices are going to continue to rise? And I seem to think like $85 a barrel, barrel is sort of digestible for the economy and isn't going to sort of cause any real big increase in expenditures on, on gas or other forms of oil using uh, expenditures. Yeah, no, that's that is a great point. Like I said, yeah, <laughs> like I said yesterday, there's always tomorrow. So, that's, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of uncertainty for sure. I I know that that the big players in oil production, I think 85% is a good number for them. They don't want it to get too high because there's been a lot of there's been a lot of looks into long-term erosion of demand for 
petroleum, especially if the price gets extremely high, then alternatives become much more economically viable. So 85 bucks, I think, is, is makes the producers happy and the consumers right now, uh, I think, can stomach it. But on the other hand, uh, you know, that's the troubled war. It's kind of unpredictable. Yeah. So maybe jumping forward a bit in terms of travel demand this summer and sort of the impact of the changing dollar in the exchange rate and the impact that has on overall uh, economic growth, or at least inbound, outbound tourism for the U.S. Do you have any thoughts today around where the dollar is and where it might be going? I know exchange rates are incredibly difficult to to predict. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Prediction is when it comes to foreign exchange, uh, definitely a loser's game. But, you know, we could talk about where what we've at least sort of, I think, stop the 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 so so the dollar had a a pretty pretty good run but it has been coming down lately which is perhaps positive for the tourism industry so the problem with the strong dollar of course is that it makes uh, europe more attractive to americans with their strong bucks but it also makes america less attractive for uh, say europeans asians uh south americans you know anyone that's looking as far as north american travel you know, something that, that I had been paying attention as well, you know, you're going to the Gulf and, uh, you know, Gulf Florida market's been competing with Caribbean, with uh, with some markets in Mexico as well. And uh, peso had had incredible run against the dollar and that's coming down uh, a little bit as well. So for a little while, I guess some of the competition in the Gulf was shielded from some of the some of the Mexican resorts by that strong peso that's coming down a little bit. So. You know, there are a number of uh, different sort of competing effects right here. But I think the picture that we've seen this year is improvement this summer to the international travel picture as far as the imbalance goes. You're you're, you're losing some numbers that suggested that. Yeah, I mean, we did see the dollar weakening through the beginning of August. That does appear to have helped a bit in terms of uh, inbound international travel. Uh, so we had been sort of at, I'm, as of spring, running about 20%, 18% below 2019 levels of tourism spend in the U.S. from international travelers. As we look at the data through now August, that's only down 8%. Uh, so significant improvement there. And all the while, I'm, I, <laughs> that was right when we saw sort of the dollar start to weaken. Uh, and sort of we reached the lowest point as of sort of the beginning of September. Since then, uh, the dollar has strengthened a bit more. Uh, and we were at sort of 90 cents to the dollar, 90 euros to 100 uh, beginning of August. Now we're up to 94. That's some strengthening. And then in terms of an Americans going abroad, uh, that had been and really strong as of the beginning of the year, as of last year as well. Uh, so we were about 15% above 2019 levels, uh, and that has sort of continued in its strength. And, and we're at 15% above in April. We're at 15% above today. So it does look like I mean, we sort of maintained that in terms of, of spend, uh, at least not increasing in terms of seeing more Travelers that might have stayed domestic continue to to exit. So I think that's that's overall I'm pretty good. 
Uh, and then I'm something I pay close attention to in just and what travel tourism sort of accounts for overall exports for the U.S. So when someone coming abroad from abroad comes to the U.S. and spends money that is considered an export, uh, travels one of the biggest exports that the U.S. has, uh, and it's now seven point four percent of total exports, uh, and that's up from just six and a half percent at the beginning of the year and five and a half percent last year. So I mean, a real strong increase in in foreign spend to the U.S. year over year up, I think about thirty five percent. So overall, I'm feeling much better about that today than I was sort of three or four months ago. So hopefully the sort of strength that we see in the dollar and isn't a trend that continues, although it does <laughs> does make our trips to Europe a, a bit uh, cheaper. And we continue to see the sort of recovery because that will be a driver for and demand in a lot of our major cities uh, going forward. Right. Yeah, we, I mean, I hope, yeah, I hope, like you say, the dollar tracking isn't a trend. I know that, uh, you know, there's always, a, a, when there's political instability in the, in one hemisphere, then, you know, some of the money will go to the, to the other in the hopes of uh, finding some security. So, of course, for many, many reasons, hope to a, a swift and peaceful conclusion to as many conflicts as we can, as we can resolve. But yeah, that, that's great news on the, uh, the travel front. I guess we had, what was this? This was the hot European summer, right? So we're hoping we can <laughs> yeah, get the hot American, yeah. hot American summer next next year. Yeah, hot it was. So uh, maybe we'll end it there on on a positive note. Uh, Bram, thank you so much for uh, joining again. Maybe leave the uh, listeners. What are you watching over the next couple of weeks? What numbers that are going to come out that and you're paying close attention to? Uh, sort of form form your opinion on on where we're at. Ooh, well, of course, the inflation numbers are going to be coming out pretty soon. Those always come out right before the the monthly review, and in the months to come, because you know we're going to be forecasting pretty soon. You know, I'm going to be paying a lot of attention to this occupancy trend that we've been seeing. Was August a one-off event, or you know, will we be tacking closer to 2022 moving forward? Have we reached a new higher level of natural occupancy? So that's certainly going to be something I'm looking at. Well, I. Sure, you'll update us all in the months ahead and uh, looking forward to working on the latest Outlook report with you. And uh, for listeners, I know we've got a few conferences coming up. We'll be uh, The team will be down at Bigger Pockets uh, in Orlando. I think that's next week. And then I'll be down in Orlando the week after for the Verma International Conference, which is also down in Orlando. So uh, if you're around, uh, reach out to the team. We'd be happy to meet up. Thank you all for listening.